0: You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Hugh Aldersey-Williams to talk about his new book, Dutch Light, Christian Huygens, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and the making of science in Europe. And Christian Huygens is, well, he's the greatest scientist that you've only half heard of. Hugh, can you start by telling me a bit about what he did and why why we should have heard of him? I mean, we know he gave his name to a, a spacecraft, but
1: Yes, he, d- he did recently, which was some honour for him. He's been honoured in one two ways. He's, he was used to be on an old Dutch banknote as well, but you're right, most people haven't heard of him. He's the greatest physicist and astronomer and mathematician, really, between Galileo and Newton, both of whom you have heard of. So his main discovery that people will be sort of surprised and delighted by is that he discovered the rings of Saturn or the ring as it then was they couldn't discern there were multiple rings but he correctly identified the blurry things that people were seeing through their telescopes at that time as being an orbital ring around the planet he discovered its first moon and around the same time this is the late 1650s He also perfected the first accurate pendulum clock, which is a very practical innovation. He was mainly interested in astronomical timekeeping, measuring the transit of things across the sun or um, orbital periods of satellites, for example. But an accurate clock was obviously a a great benefit uh, socially as well and there were great hopes that he might be able to crack the longitude problem and, and and modify this device so you could use it at sea
0: and i mean one of the things that's really striking reading your book and it seems to be a theme of the book is how you know he was sort of galloping over all these different areas of knowledge and working on different problems you know mathematical problems sort of abstract problems practical problems you know theoretical or astronomical problems, you know, he could draw, he was a sort of tinkerer, he, you know, was comfortable with mathematical abstraction. You know, he sort of did everything at once. You know, you talk about, you know, the making of science in Europe. Modern science is very sort of cantonized, isn't it?
1: It is, yes. Sort of, people are aware that perhaps it would be a good thing if it was less cantonized now, and that people realise sometimes that the greatest potential for breakthroughs are on the boundaries between disciplines rather than slap bang in the middle of one but at this time in the 17th century you're right scientists um, the word hadn't been invented but natural philosophers who are essentially doing what we'd recognize as science were apparently to our eyes sort of all over the place they were astronomers they were physicists they were looking at plants they were looking down microscopes they were if they had the ability using mathematics of various sorts as well. One of Huygens's occasional correspondents is Christopher Wren, who wasn't at this stage an architect, but was a very fine mathematician and physicist and astronomer. So, you know, he's another case in point of a person like that, who straddles, now appears to straddle many disciplines, and then really it was just the compartments of inquiry hadn't really been sorted yet, and so people were apparently interested in everything.
0: Now, I mean, I think we can return to that as a subject, but one of the themes that sort of moves through the book, I'm mean, interested in how you, how you sought to approach it, because, you know, optics is quite close to the centre of a number of these apparently quite disparate fields of inquiry, and you've called the book Dutch Light, What was your your way of approaching your subject? Because you're you're doing more than just writing a straight A to B biography.
1: Yes, a bit more. I'm certainly trying to provide a bit of context. And I'm obviously aware that Huygens is operating in this amazing time and place of the Dutch Golden Age when all this amazing art is happening. And it just occurred to me going around Holland and looking at these paintings and so on, that there must be some kind of connection between the Dutch light that we celebrate in the work of Rembrandt and Vermeer and so on, and the light that the physicists were using in their optics and thinking about in their optics. You know, Huygens came up with the first sort of fully worked out theory wave wave-based theory of light and that was 150 years before science was ready to um, had the evidence to kind of fully support the idea so he was thinking about the fundamental nature of light as well as using it in his if you like everyday astronomy.
0: Now that, that world you describe of the Dutch golden age I mean as it you know as your book starts I mean it's, it's always a world of sort of negotiation and conflict you know as, as the book starts we've got you know, Spain has sort of pushed up, and you suggest that actually some of where, you know, that actually the lens grinders and the glass workers who made what Huygens was doing possible were sort of, you know, forced up from, you know, the forced up from the bottom into the.
1: They, they I mean, as the Spanish made life increasingly difficult for Protestants in particular, people in those kinds of trades very often glassmaking and other sort of fine crafts, textiles and, and painting and so on, who had been very focused around Antwerp, say, and Bruges in the late 16th century, were pushed sort of gradually north. And so during an important sort of preamble period in this book, I'm looking at a place called Middelburg, which is the capital of Zeeland province in, in the Netherlands. And this becomes a very brief but very bright centre of all kinds of innovation and creativity, including lens making and uh, glass making. And then the, the push continues and actually a lot of these people then find themselves in North Holland, you know, Amsterdam and, and Leiden, The Hague, Holland, places like that.
0: And, you know, you talk about the sort of prefatory period of the book. I mean, one of the decisions you've made is to spend a lot of time actually on... Christian's father, Constantine, you know, who was—I mean, again, interestingly—I think for your description of how science proceeds, he was what you call a kenner, wasn't he? What do you—what do you mean by that? And what—why—why why did you think it was important to spend so much time on Constantine?
1: Well, it was important to spend time with him, not least because he lived almost as long as his sons. So he's a presence throughout the whole of Christian Eigen's working life. And he's a very engaged presence too. So Constantine Huygens, and there's a very nice portrait of him in the National Gallery. He was knighted by James I. And he was a diplomat primarily, but also a composer and a poet. He translated John Donne. He knew enough about painting to be in a position to identify the talent of Rembrandt and offer him some commissions at the court and got him sort of going on his career. And this is being a kenner. He's enough immersed in these creative fields to be an expert on them, but also a creator in his own right. So he composes and and, plays music and knows about music. He's not just a sort of, I mean, kenner literally in Dutch means connoisseur, but connoisseur seems to be a slightly sort of debased term these days, a slightly sort of sneery um, kind of term for someone who, knows a lot about a small field but in a theoretical way very often. So this is a very different kind of knowledge that involves immersion in it, doing it, knowing how to mix paints, knowing how, in Christian's case, to grind lenses, which he does for himself for his telescopes. So it's a very hands-on touchy-feely sort of world as well as an intellectual one.
0: I think I'm right in remembering that Constantine helps get Descartes published yes,
1: in that's France, right. is that, yes, and,
0: and Descartes is a sort of really important presence in this book, isn't he, as a sort of foil to what Christiane's doing and as a, as a sort of intellectual background.
1: Descartes becomes a foil more, maybe, and starts out as, a, as an influence, so Constantine, the father, worked with Descartes early on in a on a problem in optics and they wanted to make a particular kind of lens that they thought would get rid of aberration in the telescopes and so on which is called a hyperbolic lens and and over a period of years and working with a lens grinder and so on they tried to make this lens and failed but Constantine was then able to help Descartes in the more useful way in that he was got the Discours sur la méthode published in Holland and also in France through his sort of diplomatic offices so he did have a very practical influence on that and Descartes is you know, a strong philosophical and scientific influence at that time so much so that you know they said that you either were or weren't a Cartesian even in Holland where and never mind France I mean Descartes was living in Holland a lot of this time so it was natural that Christian grew up admiring Descartes. The Discourse sur la méthode, which we know as the book that gives us, the, I think, therefore I am, and, and the sort of that kind of area of philosophy, was meant to be a sort of much longer work, including a huge discourse on optics and meteorology and other scientific fields. So the philosophical part was just a sort of preface to that in, in some ways. Anyway, Descartes, is, is his thinking is a strong influence on Christian Huygens at the beginning. But then gradually, as he makes more and more observations and discoveries and performs his experiments, he realised that not everything conforms to Cartesian theory and he becomes sort of gradually more and more sceptical about Descartes.
0: Yes, you have a, a sort of almost very slight running joke of Descartes being a bit of a duffer in certain scientific respects. I don't... <laughs>
1: He certainly wasn't a duffer, but he, he did have an extraordinary reluctance to actually do experiments. And so he will sort of state a priori from on high that if you roll, roll a billiard ball into another billiard ball of a certain mass, it will or won't move. I can't remember exactly what he says, And you know he could have done that on his desktop in no time flat and discovered that it was not right. But that just wasn't his way.
0: No, no, but but Huygens goes off in a different direction. Now, can you tell me a bit about Huygens' character? I mean, how do you how do you sort of read him? How do you what sense of him as a as a person do you get? It's it's quite
1: hard to get a sense of him as a as a sort of fully rounded person, if you like. As a scientist, I get an impression of him as more focused than many of that period you know, including people like Newton a half generation later in that he doesn't wander off onto sort of unanswerable areas of religion or occultism or whatever so he he's got a good eye for sort of soluble problems so that that's a good scientific trait to have and he's focused and he can Sort of design a, a program of research and pursue it quite rigorously and so on. And you see this over and over again in his sort of presentations of, of his treatises. So, when he writes about probability, for example, he writes the sort of first textbook on probability, he's talking about games of dice and so on. And he goes through very systematically building up case by case of sort of situations in dice gameplay which get more complicated to pull out general rules of probability from that. So he's quite focused in that sense. He lives for a good part of his career in Paris. He seems much happier in Paris. He's more socially connected. He goes to balls and concerts and so on, and has friends, participates in salons, has women friends, goes to banquets, gets the buzz out of seeing the king in the distance. And then occasionally there's a period of withdrawal to The Hague, which is where his father lives, and f- sort of for illness or for ostensible illness, even sometimes when he's been sort of attacked by some rival.
0: it suggests he has clinical depression at one point or you not
1: It does not seem sure. to be
0: a bit like that at times, but but
1: not sort of not unprovoked there's usually a as they say, a a sort of vicious, particularly vicious dispute or something has caused this. Anyway, he will withdraw to The Hague, and he's pretty bored in The Hague, really, because there isn't this great social world that there is in Paris at that time. The Hague is a tiny place. Andrew Marvell joked that the Dutch made a village for their capital. So he's bored, he's at home, he can get on writing his treatises and doing your little experiment up in the attic, but there is none of that kind of social distraction.
0: Another thing that's sort of sketchy in all this is his, is his love life. He never married, and he seems to have had these sort of very tentative relationships with women. Was it, was he simply devoted to his work? or?
1: Well, I mean, I wish I'd been able to find out a bit more about this, because, I mean, previous biographies don't really get very far with this. There are a number of girlfriends of various sorts of seriousness at different times often somewhat committed to other people this is rather unfortunate and sometimes sort of they turn out to be a bit of a courtesan and he's been fooled into a relationship with and another one goes off to a nunnery pretty much and so he perhaps just can't pick the right girl i don't know i should say that his, you know most of his peers were in a similar position And that Newton and Leibniz and Hook and so on didn't marry either. So this wasn't an unusual situation. I mean, I wouldn't say he was just married to his work, though. I mean, I think he would have liked to be in a in a stable relationship.
0: A sort of major theme of the book is the sort of growing internationalism of science. You know, it's not an accident that he spends a lot of time in Paris and in London, and the Royal Society is getting started and. I mean, you, will you describe how at various points, you know, he always seems to be in correspondence with London when an Anglo-Dutch war starts or he's living in Paris when the French-Dutch war starts. How did he negotiate across these lines? Well,
1: it's with difficulty, essentially. It's surprising that the science, for the most part, continues through these you know, really quite tricky periods where, as you say, you know, there were three Anglo-Dutch wars during the course of his career and then there was a major French invasion of Holland as well so and and all this is actually you know not long after the the big the 80 years war the, the Spanish war with Holland has finished as well so for most of his life most of his father's life there is war of some sort or another but the science seems to go on and with certain sort of detours and prevarications and, and so on you can usually get to between the Hague and Paris, say, or between Paris and London. You may not go to the route you want and your package of scientific instruments may be opened and trashed and your mysterious looking letters with uh, bits of scientific gobbledygook on them may be misconstrued as code and so on. So there are awkward, you know, there are obstacles put in the way. But there is this emerging community of scientists who really aren't interested in the the national situations of their respective countries and are more interested in getting on with the science.
0: How political do you think of Huygens as being? Because obviously some of the things that he was looking at, particularly, say, solving the longitude problem, had, you know, really strong naval and political implications. Did he see these do you think as entirely abstract investigations or or was there a bit of him that was conscious of, of those implications?
1: He must have been aware of the implications because certainly working on the longitude problem you have to try out your clocks on shipboard so you need to get them put on a boat on a long trip and you know someone needs to reliably take readings all the time while the boat's ship sailing and you know come back and see how well it performed and he does these trials at various periods I and mean, this is over you know 20-30 years of his career on Dutch ships and on English ships and on French ships because you know he he is living in Paris a lot of the time so his part of his connections are French. He was collaborating with a, a Scottish scientist and so, on that occasion, it was natural that the, his clock and Huygens's clock and the Scottish scientist Robert, not Robert Bruce, um, Alexander Bruce, his clock should go on the same boat to be comparatively tested. So, so you, know, you you sort of pursue a very pragmatic course and try to make what progress you can with what resources someone puts at your disposal.
0: And in terms of this. You know, you mentioned that there are these sort of rivalries where people will occasionally say, oh, that was my invention. You know, I got there first. And obviously, you know, a bit later on, Newton and Leibniz and the calculus becomes one of those issues. But how were these things arbitrated? And, you know, a related question. Why did he take so long to publish? You yeah, know, very um, often, like Horologium Oscillatorium, you know, his great work about pendulum clocks, came out years after he'd done the work, didn't he? Yes, it?
1: yes. The, the slowness to publish is a big part of the problem. So when you make a discovery, you need to publicise it and you need to stick your name on it. And you need to do so in a way that preserves the, the gainful part of it, if you like. So, you know, in a field such as clockwork, where there's huge commercial potential. You don't want to give away all your secrets. So, so all that has to be quite carefully managed, but there aren't really the systems in place yet whereby you can do that. So there aren't scientific journals. You know, They begin a little bit later in the 1660s, but the intense period when Huygens is working on clocks, for example, in the 1650s, there aren't yet scientific journals. So what he does and what other people did too was he will communicate news of his discovery in disguised form as an anagram for example with a date with his name on it saying I discovered this then and then at a later date he can reveal the solution to the anagram and thereby establish his priority. The difficulty arises when someone comes in and claims oh yes but I had that much earlier and doesn't have any written evidence for it and this happens in, with Hooke, for example. He has a big dispute over the spring balance in clocks. And that really can't ever be properly resolved.
0: One thing that seems quite striking is that there's, at least to a certain extent, quite a sort of internationalist good faith in the way that the fledgling scientific institutions dealt with these things. I mean, he, didn't, he wasn't necessarily disadvantaged, was he, by being a Dutchman when it came to those arbitrations in the Royal Society?
1: No, I, mean, I think in the case of Huygens's career, I mean, there were a couple of instances where he was tremendously fortunate to run into people who who really could sort of sidestep all that side of things. So he got his job as he became, in effect, the founder, or the, the sort of, he set up the programme for the French Academy of Sciences, which is quite remarkable for a Dutchman. And he got that appointment from Jean-Baptiste Colbert, Louis XIV's sort of all-powerful minister, who...
0: He's sort of Dominic Cummings figure, old Colbert, isn't he?
1: Uh, someone's going to say that, yes. The, 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 in, in Dominic Cummings' dreams, I think, yes, Colbert was much more powerful and adept. But he had that same obsession with using data for the grandissement of the state. And he saw in Huygens someone who could handle data, who could set a programme of sensible experiments to do for this new academy. And Huygens wasn't completely averse to doing sort of practical things coming from Holland where, you know, all of hydraulics is geared towards keeping the water in the ditches and not in the fields. Um, and and sort of practical science like that, he wasn't averse to that, which is you know, in contrast to some of the people at the salons in Paris. Colbert was one super important figure for Huygens. And then another, the one that sort of made Him able to jump the channel to London as well was this man, Henry Oldenburg, who was the foreign secretary, as it were, of the Royal Society. And he was a German emigre, but he'd been settled in England a long time and was associated with the Royal Society from the very beginning. And he took it upon himself to translate a lot of the correspondence between scientists on the continent and in England and also to sort of step in and mediate their frequent disputes, which he did tremendously uh, skillfully.
0: Yes, he was a sort of Bush telegraph, wasn't he? I mean, he'd be forwarding these treatises to make sure all the people were abreast of things.
1: Yes, and and translating or summarising or, you know, tremendously technical material and so on. So it's, it's a huge job sort of, you know, while not actually being research science, it, it's a tremendously significant job in his own right.
0: Now, in between these different figures, I'm interested in where you see Huygens's sort of scientific disposition, because, you know, as you point out, you know, he rejected Descartes' refusal to experiment. You know, he was, to an extent, an empiricist, but he also, he, he kind of differed with Newton, didn't he? Because Newton's, from Newton, empiricism was sort of enough. And Huygens wanted to go further, didn't he?
1: Yes, this is what meant that Huygens was always a bit uncomfortable about Newton's theory of gravity, for example, because for Newton it was enough to know that the maths unequivocally showed that, you know, planets go in elliptical orbits around their sun with such and such an equation. And Huygens still wanted to know, yes, but how? And there's a bit of this in in the nature of light as well. And that's the old sort of Cartesian mindset coming through. And for Descartes, everything had to be connected to matter and motion. And so there had to be some kind of, if tenuous, physical connection between, you know, the sun and the planets, or between two particles. Whereas for Newton, the invisible force, as proven by maths, was enough.
0: And he also, I mean, didn't quite get to the, or at least didn't, didn't take that side of it, quite, did he, in terms of mathematics. You talk very lucidly and interestingly about how it wasn't enough just to do algebra, to describe, you know, a mathematical description of physical property, you know, he wanted to see it and visualize it didn't he i mean he, he used geometric yes. proofs more I than. i mean he, than
1: that was. he was a bit of a traditionalist in that way and this goes back to the sort of ancient greek way of doing maths before they had algebra and they they you could do a lot in geometry and you know by measuring the angles and the lengths of lines those are your answers those are the numbers that come out as the the equation that is sort of implicit in the geometrical pattern you're looking at, if you like. Huygens was very good at this. This was a a sort of traditional, a more traditional method of proceeding than Leibniz and and Newton favored, but he found it tremendously powerful. And, you know, who knows if there's some connection between sort of that and the Dutch idea of visualisation from painting and so on, and the surveys of the land and, and, you know, all sorts of things like that. So, so his, his geometry is key to his approach. So, for example, when he devises his wave theory of light, that is all presented in um, terms of geometrical diagrams. And he can explain reflection and all kinds of refraction, including some complicated new forms of refraction that people were worrying about at the time with these geometrical diagrams.
0: His father and brother were both in different ways quite woven into the sort of orange court and his father was a devout Calvinist. I mean, at, at least until the closing of the book, you don't talk very much about his religious position, Christians. What, What's your feeling about how he, because obviously someone looking for a theory of the universe or, you know, might speculate.
1: Yes. I mean, just to start with his father for a minute, that Constantine's religion, he was a sort of devout Calvinist but he wasn't a, a sort of doer Calvinist. He he liked music and a feast and dance and a lot of things that someone might think Calvinists wouldn't tolerate. So, yeah, I think there was there was a sort of pragmatic Calvinism operating in a large part of Holland. Christian was brought up in this milieu, but he really doesn't have any interest in it, I don't think. He doesn't have any thing to say about when he goes to Paris, the religion is obviously different, practices are different, you know, I I think he he sort of goes to church when obliged, but no more than that. And gradually, I think, a kind of atheism emerges, and this may be influenced by his connection with Spinoza, which we don't know how close that was, but, you know, they certainly met And Spinoza lived and ground lenses a few yards away from the Huygens' country house just outside The Hague. So it's it's not a sort of Richard Dawkins type atheism, it's a more benign atheism than that, I think, and and really scarcely expressed. But it does free Christian up to be able to then, for example, write about the forms that life might take on other planets.
0: This is a fascinating kind of coda. And that was published after his death, wasn't it?
1: Well, he made sure it was, yes, because he was a bit worried about it. It was it was just slightly beyond the pale. But, uh, you know, other people have begun to think about this. And, but his was the first sort of proper informed astronomers stab at it.
0: It was a sort of non-crazy book. I mean, I'm thinking that, you know, when you also have a walk-on from Margaret Cavendish, you know, who had some slightly more extravagant ideas about life on other worlds. But Cosmotheor, it seems to be sort of, as you suggest, making some of the same calculations that scientists now make about not quite Goldilocks zones, but probabilistic inquiries. Well,
1: I mean, Huygens, unlike most people at that time, you know, those doing science too, was quite happy with probable situations he he wasn't after certainty at all costs he'd done this work on probability in in the game playing sense in his early work on calculation in games of chance and i think you know this made him more relaxed about embracing the idea of probability And so, yes, you do get a sort of forerunner of this famous piece of guesstimation called the Drake Equation that was popularized by Carl Sagan, where you can guess the number of alien species there might, or alien civilizations there might be by, you know, taking the total number of stars, multiplying them by the number of planets on them, and then starting to divide by all sorts of factors that knock out the possibility of life. So he sort of does that in Cosmotheorys a little bit. And he also speculates about the forms that life might take. And so, you know, with this very recent discovery about possible life on Venus that might be sort of cloud-born microorganisms of some strange sort, he was there with this kind of idea in the you know, end of the 17th century, talking about reasoning about the forms that life might take based on the size of the planet, based on its gravity, based on its atmosphere, those kinds of things. But very then, you know, very rapidly then going off and sort of saying, well, yeah, they'd have to have telescopes and they'd have to have, you know, all these sort of human accomplishments, essentially. So, so there is a sort of mix between sort of modern way of looking at it and a sort of Swiftian sort of fantastical of looking at it
0: as the you know among many other things the discoverer of the first moon of saturn would you have been chuffed to have been had a space probe named after him would you have been following its progress
1: i'm sure he would yes i think i think that would you know that plays right into his program i think the discovery of And Galileo discovered the first four moons around Jupiter, uh, a sort of generation before Huygens made his discovery. And that obviously changed the expectations of the solar system hugely from the sort of Aristotelian idea of perfect spheres and, and nothing could sort of get in their way. But then, you know, his discovery of another satellite around another planet just blows it apart again. And so all things are really possible in imagination if not in fact when thinking about the solar system and beyond
0: well a fit note to end on Hugh Aldersey-Williams thank you very much indeed for your time and the book is out now and terrific it is too can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph.